0: here today. Thank you to everyone who's watching online. If you missed last week, um, I said this. I said that the presence of God changes people. The presence of God changes people. And we talked about that image that's on the graphic of the Moses statue and how when he came down from the mountain, Michelangelo, had read a interpretation that said he had horns on his face, but really what had happened is his face was radiant and his face was glowing. And when you get in the presence of God or you are in the presence of God, you will be changed. You will be changed, it will change you. Uh, Moses' face was aglow, it was radiating, it was like putting off this light and heat and it was incredible and everyone noticed and he had to cover his face up and uh, whenever he was around God, he would change even more. And so what we're doing in this series is talking about the presence of God and how when we're in the presence of God, it changes us. And so what it made me start to think about was what has changed me and how you get in the presence of God. And I started to think and go down memory lane of what has made me glow. And it's the same thing, it's the presence of God, but how did that happen? And I just started to think about the movement of God in my life and what he's done in my life and the the years of history that I have engaging the God of the universe. And so um, this is my gym bag. I engage this several times a week uh, for my gym stuff, but I took all that stuff out and I put something else in there. And what I wanna do is take you down memory lane um, in terms of what has actually changed me and made me glow, because uh, the things that are in this bag um, are the things that have caused me the greatest change in my life, and you. You may have met me at a certain time. You might have met me when I was 18 and you could tell there was a certain glow. And then you met me when I was 24 and you could tell there was a certain glow. And you could tell when I was uh, 31 or uh, there was a certain glow. And over time, there's been this, this ever glow that kind of ebbs and flows. And all of that glowing has to do with this bag. And uh, I've told my story a lot of different times, but. When I was 12, I was sitting in church, I was sitting in the back row, and while I was in the back row, God spoke to me. That's, that's the way I tell the story, and that may sound bizarre, but it's true. I was in there, and I believe God called me to be a preacher. The pastor actually said, is, any, is God talking to anybody? And I stood up as a 12-year-old and said, God's called me to be a preacher. And he said, yes, he has. And so from that moment on, from when I was 12, I started to pursue what it looked like to be a preacher, and I had some things that happened in my life that caused that, and the first thing that made the biggest impact on my life, which caused the initial glow, it was like the first time you go to the tanning bed, the little bit of red, it was like a little bit, was this right here, the student Bible. This was my first Bible. This right here, and I haven't looked at this, I'm not kidding you, for 10 years. And as I looked in it, I got it on October 10th, 1993. My parents gave it to me. This was my first real Bible. And as I look through here, there's all these parts and things that I marked as I read through it. And as I got into this book, it just started to blow my mind. And it made me more excited for who God was. And when I got into the New Testament, as I was kind of trying to read through the whole thing, there's just parts that... I can go back and look that I had highlighted throughout my journey in this book and I go back and see those pages that I highlighted and I think to myself, wow, I remember. I remember when I highlighted that. I remember when I wrote that. I remember that God did something to me and for me, preaching has always been, this is what preaching has always been to me and I believe that this is kind of, Indicative of what it means to have an encounter with God. And for me, it always turned into, I was called to be a preacher, so I had to go and do something with what God did right here. I was in this space, and I would read something. And it would spark something in my heart. And honestly, that is still today how God uses me to preach. I read something. Something jumps in me. Something moves in my chest, I get excited, I want to say, I do, it's like that, literally, I just want to lurch, lurch at you. I stand on the edge of the stage because I see it and I go, what? And as I read through this book, I got to those parts um, in Acts where I think Peter is preaching in a, in a house church and he, he's preaching through the night and a little, a kid is sitting in the window, you know this story, and the kid falls out of the window and dies, and I read that and I thought, whoa, I better get better at preaching. And I, so I continued to study the scriptures and he, he goes and raises him from the dead because he had some JC power at the time. But this book, this book, reading this book, opening this book, spending time in this book right here changed my life. Changed my life forever, this one. After I got that book and I kinda went through that book and I studied that book and God got a hold of me, I thought, okay, it's time to get serious and I decided that I was gonna go to college to study that book and then I got this book, the NASB Study Bible with my name on it. It says Joel in leather. It's a leather-bound book. It smells of rich leather. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I started to look at this book and this was the book that God used in my life when I went to college to study to become a pastor and a preacher. And I have parts in this book that I outlined that I, I read these things and, and it, it, it just blows my mind the things that I read and the things that I saw back then. Nehemiah, I was reading in Nehemiah and I underlined these, these certain verses and, and and right here, even just right now, Nehemiah, the first page, I I I outlined the word reproach, and then over here I, I I wrote the word reproach, and and I connected these verses together, and I I remember in Nehemiah just just while I'm sitting here talking to you that Nehemiah does something when he prays for the nation of Israel because the walls are burning, and he prays not a not just a specific personal prayer, but he actually prays a corporate prayer to ask for the the, the forgiveness of sins for the entire nation of Israel, and I remember that, that as I was learning what that meant, that it was my job to not just pray for my personal like, saving and changing and, and renewal, but to pray for the whole world that I lived in. I just remembered that right now just from this book. God used this book to change my life. And then, and then it was like, okay, I had the student Bible, and then I had the study college Bible, and then I was like, okay, now I need to like, get a little cooler so I got the thin Bible, These are all my Bibles. These books, that book, then that book, then this book, these are the books that changed my life. I would not be in front of you today if I didn't read these books. I would not glow, I would have nothing to offer you, I have nothing to say. When we put the scriptures up on the screen, We didn't find some cool words online and put them on the screen. They came from this book. And this book is a masterpiece. And it stands the tests of scientific documentation and historicity. You can look at it, it is cohesive. There are parts where it is confusing and it seems contradictory, but there's a reason for that. And in terms of a historical document, It is as good as it gets and people who do not believe in what this book claims say that. You can go through a year of study to figure out that what I just said is true. This book was written over thousands of years with a cohesive story all summarizing in the person and the historical man, Jesus Christ, who there's more proof he was alive than Napoleon and he died and he rose from the dead and you, can read about him and encounter him in a book like this. So I got really excited, I had my own book then I could take it where it was thin. And then when I went to seminary, we had to get really serious about the Bible and I got a Greek Bible, Greek. This is when it got really confusing for me because it's hard but I spent, I am not joking you, I spent a year reading 1 John in Greek. Because it's the easiest book, so it's all I can handle. I'm not joking, I'm not an academic. Greek was hard, I took it for two years, it wore me out, but I learned to read the entire book of 1 John in Koine Greek, which was what the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in, and it changed my life. Seeing how many times a person who was a contemporary with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, John, wrote the words love agape and talked about how after all is said and done after the fall of israel in 70 a.d that jesus's mandate of love was still the most powerful force in the world And I studied that and I opened this up and as I read this book, it changed my life, it changed the way I look, it changed the way I act, it changed the way I think. Now what you have to understand, I mean, I went through all these different seasons and then I went on to like cool little miniature snap Bible. I mean, these are my Bibles, I'm missing one. I had a new King James version because that was cool for a little bit. I'm serious, I had all different kinds and I studied these and what you need to understand and what i want to 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 share with our church today is that this is what leads our church this book i did not write this book i am studying this book still it is very difficult to figure out but this is called god's holy word and we believe that through the process of God's divine revelation, over time, that he orchestrated his word in this book. And so when you ask the church, why do you think that, what do you say, what do you mean, why are you that way? We are humbly submitting ourselves to this revelation that in our mind carries so much weight with one major anchor outside of other very strong historical anchors. The person and the claims of Jesus Christ make this book very powerful, very, very powerful. Everything we do, how we lead, what we think, it comes from something that we are humbly trying to follow and lead through in this book. And I am here today to make a change for 514 Church a change from this day forward. And that is that we are going to carry these books all the time. You're gonna bring one to church. And if you don't bring one, you're not allowed in. No. (laughs) If you don't bring one, that's okay. We'll give you one, we'll help you buy one. If you can't afford one, we will buy you one. We will give it to you. And we will not shame you if you don't have one, but I, and you can hold me accountable i am gonna carry this book while I'm in this building and while I'm in our new building from this day forward because people need to understand that we are servants of a living God and that we read about who he is and what he has to say and we engage him right here. And listen, this morning, I did it different. You see, for so long at our church, we've put the the words up on the screen and we're still gonna do that and that's fine. It's good, but there's a difference when you go and you look on the internet and you look at your application for the Bible because you look at it on your phone. Now, let me just pull out my phone. When I am looking at the scriptures on this, it's fine. It's still God's word. I don't think it's you know, I think it's amoral. I don't think it's good or bad. It can be bad. Technology can can is really amoral. It can magnify the best and the worst of humanity. Steve or uh, uh, Tim Cook said that, the CEO of Apple. He said that technology is amoral. It magnifies the good and the bad of humanity. So th- this is not the devil. This is not like evil. It can be used for good or bad. Here's the problem with me spending most of my time. On technology while I engage God this is a distraction this distracts me and it distracts you too because you have notifications it's your phone it's your text messages it's your email it's your Instagram and all of that can go either way good or bad but all the time when you're trying to engage the God of the universe this is a distraction You wanna know what's beautiful? Opening up this, the page. There is nothing else but the page. You spend 10 minutes alone with just the page, it's not gonna buzz, it's not gonna beep. It's gonna let you read it. And God orchestrated through thousands of years of history and then what, the Gutenberg Press, that we could have this on a piece of paper and engage it. So, we're gonna carry our Bibles. Let it be written. Are you with me? We're gonna carry our Bibles. You're gonna carry this to church. We're gonna figure out the lights. In the meantime, you might have to use your phones. We don't, know how, we don't have lights in here. So just, we're gonna start to carry this. Because we want to be known as people who are humbly submitting themselves to God's holy word. Okay? So, with that, I'm gonna lead us through this message today, which is all about God's holy word, and I'm gonna show you what can happen when you spend time in God's holy word. It's amazing how God can speak to you. And right now, where we are in Glow, is we're looking at how the word of God and the presence of God changed the face of Moses. And in the narrative, it's important to understand a couple of things. Moses is now on the mountain receiving the law from God. He's engaging him. Every time he's with him, he looks different because the presence of God, powerful things change people. The presence of God is changing Moses. When you rewind a little bit, what you have is a God who before people did anything to deserve it, in fact, after people did everything to lose the love of God, God went to those people, Adam and Eve, and said, I will forgive you and love you, and I will save you anyway. Then he called the man Abraham, and he said, I will use you, even though you are no one from nowhere, and I will use you to build a nation and you will be my nation and I will bless you and you will be my people regardless of what you do. And Abraham went on and lied and Abraham did all kinds of stuff he shouldn't have done and God stayed with him. He made a covenant that wasn't about Abraham's behavior, it was about God's promise to bless the world through him despite his brokenness. That nation, the kids, the the children of Abraham, they, they, they grew, they multiplied, they became a whole nation of people and they ended up in slavery in Egypt and then God used a man named Moses who was just picked out of a desert he was a guy who was a murderer and he had ended up being thrown out of kind of the kingdom of Egypt and he was in the desert and he was an Israelite and God swooned him actually used a a bush on fire in the middle of the desert as if to say you Moses i want you moses was a murderer and god swooned him like a husband does his future bride i want you to be my spokesman i want you to be my leader moses was a murderer he had no right to represent god but god picked him anyway he said i love you and i'm going to use you and then he said you're going to go and you're going to help lead the people out of this slave driven society in egypt and god did miracles which you can read about which you should read about and then he brought them out through the red sea which is the most monumental moment in the history of israel and god used moses and then when they got through the red sea the armies of egypt were covered in water after they went through and then they went to the bottom of a mountain and god said you are my people i love you No matter what you've done, you're mine. And I want to now give you some commands. I want to form you as a nation. I want to make you into a people group. So he didn't give them the law to make them a nation. He gave them the law because they already were. He didn't make them earn their love from God through following those laws. They had the love, they had the miraculous power and promise of God in their history, in their presence, and in the promise of the future. That is the nation of Israel. And what ends up happening in Exodus 32, and I'm gonna read this to you from right here from this book, and I'm gonna to start to actually like do this old school thing where I hold it like this and put my hands like this. Sometimes I might, I don't know. But I have a pencil right here, and it's a Captain America pencil which means we're talking serious business, all right? Look at this, Exodus 32, verses seven through 14. Moses is up on the mountain, receiving the law. The people are down at the bottom of the mountain. They're waiting for Moses to come down and lead them. They've They've been up there, God and Moses, for 40 days. So some things start to get a little bit crazy. It says this, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a a calf. You have to get the context. These people have been blessed by God. They just experienced the most miraculous freedom train that has ever been exhibited in the history of the world. They saw a Red Sea part and they were brought to the bottom of a mountain and up on the top of that mountain is lightning and thunder and crashing and they know that the God of the universe is up there and they're just gone too long and they start to freak out and do what people have done and people in that region always did which was find someone to worship usually some type of living creature and they find an image of a living creature and they actually make it out of the gold that they have they craft it in a furnace and they start to worship it they start to party and run around and yell and scream and God hears them and he says Moses you need to go down your people are now worshiping a golden calf now some of us when we hear that story we think, how could they do that? But the reality is, is that that is a picture of every one of us. In fact, the author in the book of Exodus is trying to say, this is what people do. It is literally almost a remapping or an overmapping of what happened in Genesis. When God gave them everything they could ever need, a garden, and then they decide to worship someone other than God, a golden calf. It's the same story. And actually, what ends up happening in the story is the same thing that happens in Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, God comes up. Adam, what does he do? He blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. When Moses comes down the mountain, we won't read it, he actually, after he's the one who told all the people, he blames all the people. It's literally, the author knows Genesis, and he's going, it's the same thing. This is the story of humanity, we will, let to our own devices worship things we shouldn't worship. And we do it all the time. You, whatever you're running after, whatever you're, you're celebrating more than you're celebrating God, that is the human's heart of, and its ability to actually go and pick something that is created and worship it more than the creator. It is part of our nature. It's part of our fallen situation. And so that's what we do. What you're gonna see here is that then it says that God is frustrated with them and he has something to say about that. Verse nine, he says, or no, back, back, with, uh, back with the calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now, listen to what he says, leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and I may destroy them, that I will make you, then I will make you into a great nation. He says, I'm gonna let my anger burn, I'm gonna kill all the people worshiping the calf, and Moses, it's just gonna be you and me. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Oh Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? whom you have brought up out of Egypt with great power and your mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that you brought them up out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you have swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. So here's the deal, they start worshiping a golden calf. God has every right to destroy them because he has done numerous miracles, he has given them favor, he has blessed them. They, at the weakest, most simple moment, immediately turn their backs on him, worship a golden calf. God says, well, you started worshiping a golden calf then I'm gonna kill you. And Moses goes, God, come on, don't kill us. Come on, just, just remember, you promised, you made a promise to him, you made a promise about this, you promised our future, come on. And God goes, oh, okay, I'm glad you asked. Okay, I'm glad you asked. You understand the picture? God is bending over backwards to be with his people. God is bending over backwards. All he wants to do is just make it right. He's going, man, you worshipped the golden calf, the Red Sea. I just did the Red Sea, you missed the Red Sea? The calf can't do the Red Sea. Remember, there were calves going through the Red Sea. I helped them too. You're worshiping one of them? Were it not for me, the calf would have been dead too. You're worshiping one of them? Don't do this. Don't. And Moses goes, I'm sorry. We won't. Don't kill us. And God goes, oh, okay. It's kind of like the like Jerry Maguire moment of the Bible. It's like, he's like, oh, I'm gonna kill you. You worship a golden calf. And then Moses is like, come on, don't you remember? Please, you made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Israel and you did this and the slaves. And God's like, you had me at, come on. Or you had me at hello. You had me at hello, okay? It doesn't take much. Why doesn't it take much? Why doesn't it take much for Moses to argue with God and say, don't kill us? Why? Because God is crazy about us, and he wants to be with us, and he wants to bring his presence to us. And we will not always move into his presence like we should, but he has done everything he can and more to bend over backwards so that he can be with you. So it keeps going on. Look at verse, chapter 33, verse three. After he says, okay, I won't kill you, he's still in this process of teaching them a lesson. Verse 3, he says, go up, talking to Moses, to the land flowing with milk and honey. That's the promised land. And he says this, but I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> we hear that and we go, man, isn't God like mean? Context tells you no, he's the most gracious, loving God in the world, he's sending a message. He's going, you guys did this, I was gonna kill you, you asked me once, I don't wanna kill you, I want a relationship with you, I want this to be good, I wanna be proximate, I want my presence to change you, I want you guys to be my people, my holy priesthood, a nation of priests, that's what I want you to be, the representatives, the oracle, the doorway to the God of the universe, I want you to be that, live that, and I'll do everything I can, and you worship a golden calf, I'm gonna kill you, God, please don't kill us, okay, I won't, I want this to work. So go to the land of uh, milk and honey and just go. And I'm not going to stay with you. I won't go with you. Because if I go with you, you're going to do a bunch of stuff, and I'm probably going to want to kill you again. And then look what it says, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Verse 14, then the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What? That's it? I'm not gonna go with you because I might destroy you. Wait a minute. Teach me, Moses says, come on, I can get better. I'll be a better leader. I'm not doing it right, but if you teach me, then I'll get better. And then God goes, okay, I'll go with you and I will give you rest. What does this say? God wants to be with his people. He's doing everything he can to be with his people. He's changing his own rules to be with his people. He's threatening and then saying, no, I'll be with you anyway. He's doing every single thing he can to be with his people. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you. And I know your name. I will do everything that you have asked. I will do everything that you have asked. This is a God, this is a Christian God of a cross. This is a God who says, I will go with you. I will die for you. I'll bend over backwards. I'll do everything I can so that we can mend the broken relationship. And here's the thing that we need to understand is that when we're in his presence and he's doing everything he can to get you right here in this book where you read about him, you experience him, when you're in his presence, he changes you, he changes you. We all have to recognize that we need change. That's what this book is about, everyone needs change. We look at the Israelites worshiping the golden calf and we think, oh man, look at those people. And when we know people in the church that are worshiping the wrong thing, what do we do? We give up on them. We say, that's not what Christianity is. That's not the way you're supposed to act. That's not the way you're supposed to talk. That's not the way you're supposed to think. We give up on the church of God before God gives up on his own church. That is a display. That is an example. That is proof of the sin of man that we think We have higher standards than the God who formed us and gave us a place and a name. We have to understand that God is thriving and driving and pushing all things to make it so that people will draw near to him, so that when they draw near to him, they will be changed, they will glow, they will be transformed into the image that God originally designed us to experience. Now, after Moses goes back up on the mountain, he's there in his presence again, and this is chapter 34, when he actually starts to experience the glow on his face. And it says in chapter six, there's a prayer about the nature of God. And this is actually the most prayed prayer by the nation of Israel of the nation of Israel in the entire book, in the entire nation. In verse six, it says, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers in the third and fourth generation. This is a God who there is a song about now who is praised for forgiving a nation and this is post calf worship. You worshiped a golden calf, I love you. You worshiped a golden calf, you deserve to die, but I won't kill you. You worshiped a golden calf, I deserve to let you go and be on your own, but I won't, I wanna stay with you. I am slow, I want to be with you, I want you to come into my presence, I want to have a relationship with you, I want to be with you, and in fact, the rest of this book, if you look, 33, 34, chapter 35, chapter 36, is all about the construction of this the tabernacle, which the tabernacle is the entire point of the latter chapters of the book of Exodus, because what God is trying to say to his people is I will deliver you out of slavery, I will give you my law, I will persist through your brokenness, and I will ask you to build a mini cosmos, like I made the world, the actual cosmos, the the heavens and the stars, I made all that, and then it got messed up. If you could just make a mini cosmos, this little tabernacle, then I will, when it's made, I will move in. Exodus chapter 40, the last verses, God comes down off of the mountain, slides down the mountain, comes screeching down the mountain into the tabernacle so that he can be in the presence of people. God wants to be in your presence more than you wanna be in his That makes no sense. We get way more out of being in his presence than he does out of ours. This is the last verses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is the same thing as saying, and God left Mount Sinai, and slid down the mountain into the tabernacle and said, now I'm gonna be with you. You can take this tent, you can move it around. I will be with you. I am a mobile God. I wanna be next to you, with you, talk to you, accessible to you. I want a relationship with you. I will stay with you even if you turn your back on me. When I get angry, I will be slow to anger. I want to have a relationship with you. I will forgive you. I am merciful and I want this to work out. That is the God of the Bible. He wants it to work out. God is doing everything He can to get you right here, right in this book, right in His presence, because He knows when you get there, you'll be changed. And it's the thing we need the most it's love. It's love. In all the travels of the Israelites, Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. God traveled with the people wherever they went so he could be in their presence. And time a person gets close to God, they're changed. The presence of God changes people and God pursues the presence of people. I wanna tell you today, God is pursuing you. You know that? He's pursuing you. He He made himself accessible to you through this book so you could learn about him, pray, hear about him, Be challenged what life is all about. He pursued you, so he he screamed down the mountain in the tabernacle. The nation of Israel eventually got a a place, the the promised land, and the, the spirit was in there and the people turned their back on God. They brought in idols. They continued to do the golden calf routine over and over again. God said, this I know, I will persist, and I will actually bring myself fully like you to you so that I can give you everything you need. And in John, what we see is that the word, the word, the power, the presence of God became flesh and made his dwelling. In my Bible right here, in John chapter one, verse 14, I wrote right next to that when it said, made his dwelling, he tabernacled. The author of the book of John is saying the move that God did when he screamed down the mountain to be in the tabernacle so he could be present with the people, this is the fullness of that idea. God in the flesh, Jesus coming to be with us, to be close to us. And God loves us so much that he was willing to become like us and be killed by us so that we could have a relationship with him. And so it takes us to this cross. Look at this cross. Look at this cross. The tabernacle, the mountain, come down the mountain, be in the tabernacle, just so you can be with God. God said, you're just gonna run from me. You're gonna kill me. Killing God is the epitome of running from God. You're gonna kill me. And in that you killing me, I will defeat God those forces so we can be together and when God took on death it didn't keep him down he rose from the dead and he hands you an extension of his power and says if you believe in me you get to follow in my footsteps you become like me we become the same type of person and in death one day you will raise from the dead the same way that I rose from the dead my heart is that this book will change your life. It will change you. And we are gonna commit ourselves to spending time in this book. We're gonna commit ourselves to reading it, to studying it, to asking questions, to humbly surrendering our surrendering our wills to it. Now, interpretation of this book is a big deal. Not everybody agrees about what this book says, but my challenge to you first is, Are you reading it enough to even have an opinion? Are you reading this book to have an idea about what God is saying? That's the kind of church I wanna be a part of. I wanna be a part of a church that is so committed to understanding that God wants to be close to us and proximate to us, that we're reading about him, that he's changing us, and we can all have that dialogue all day long. This is what's shaping us. This is what's moving us. This is what leads us. And so as we just kind of close out the day, I just wanna pray for you guys. The band's gonna come forward and just tag out a song for us for a second here. And I want us to just pray. And I want us to just make a commitment today. Make a commitment to getting this book, to reading it, to building a routine, to going to your mountain to be changed. To being motivated by a God who's bending over backwards to be with his people. Who wants to be in your presence more than you want to be in his. Let me take a minute and pray. God, thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for orchestrating them together. For weaving them together. For putting all these stories in this one spot. So we can know you and follow you. Father thank you so much for screaming down the mountain for for never giving up on us for for pursuing us for becoming flesh and dwelling among us and tabernacling among us and giving us your spirit. Father we love you, we worship you, we thank you. Amen.
1: We got stand and sing this with us. You never came on me. Your love is perfect. You never stop chasing me. Your cross says I'm worth it. You laid down your crown. Oh, you tore the curtain down. Jesus, you never give upon me your love is perfect Thank you.
0: Week, If you don't have one, go get one. If, if, if you need help, we'll help you get one. And um, we have two announcements. So more change. You guys excited about change? Yeah? I mean, why not? So let's change it up. Um, first one is rejuvenate a day to rest on September 1st, Labor Day weekend. We will not have any church. So take a break and enjoy that weekend with your families. And then the big change is the following week, September 8th, we are starting new service times. On September 8th, our service times are changing from 9 to 11. So no more 9.30 and 11.15. It will be 9 and 11. There's a lot of different reasons we need to do this. We need more space in between services. And we, we think that this time will work better in our new space. So we're just making that change now. So um, mark your calendars. Get up a little bit earlier. Um, if you have a complaint about it, send me an email and Someone will read it. Um, Seriously, though. So that's what we're doing. uh, And uh, we love you guys. We'll see you next week for GLOW, week three.